So um, we are in the middle of a series called Kingdom Parables, and one of the things that we're finding out is that most people, when Jesus heard his parables, a lot of people just had, had a really difficult time with them. They either got really, really mad or didn't understand them at all. And uh, that was true in Jesus' day, and guess what? It's true in our day as well. And this morning we come to the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it is probably one of the most well-known parables out there. You don't even have to go to church, and most people understand that reference to a good Samaritan. And since it's so popular, it's probably one of the most misunderstood uh, parables, since they're easily misunderstood anyway, misunderstood by most people who have heard it. And so uh, I want to start with this, an an observation, and and. Here's what, here's what I've noticed. Uh, over the years, and, and you've probably noticed this too, when, when a family or somebody comes into a time of transition and they're looking for a church, they have a series of questions because they want to find out about the church. And what I have found out is more often than not, people ask the wrong questions about the church. Questions like, how many people does the church have, right? Right? What kind of facility do they meet in? Is, is the preacher smart and funny? Is, is the band cool? Does the worship leader wear shoes? <laughs> but really, when it comes down to it, the most important question is this. The most important question is, why is it there? Why does that church even exist? I think that's a very important question. It's a question that we need to ask ourselves. Why in the world are we here? Well, ultimately, if you boil it all down, ultimately, you know why we're here? We are here to experience and enjoy God. We are here to enjoy and know and relate to the creator of the heavens and the earth, the universe, the one who created and holds it all together. We are here to enjoy a relationship with him forever and all for his glory. So we exist to love God first and foremost. And here's the deal. If you truly love God first and foremost, you will love what he loves. We will love our neighbors, right? We'll love our neighbors. So let me ask you. I want you to, I want you to think about this. If, if we were a church that just, just took off in, in our growth, in, in loving our neighbors, where, where we, we go from uh, just talking about it a lot and doing it a little bit to, to doing it a lot, like just doing it a lot, living it out, loving our neighbors just radically. It, it, can you imagine what our church would look like, what our ministry would look like if we just grew radically in our ability to love our neighbors? You talk to any that's been true for years and years and years. You ask people who don't go to church what their view is of church people, and they have some pretty negative things to say, don't they? And then you ask them what they think of Jesus, and then there's all these wonderful things about Jesus. Whether that's fair or not, that's reality. But I have a question. What if we loved our neighbors so well that the nature of Jesus, the character of Jesus, um, became unignorable in our city? Can you imagine what what that would be like? 
Well, this is what the parable of the good Samaritan is all about. We're going to take a closer look at this parable. And Jesus starts the story by saying that there was a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, this road from Jerusalem to Jericho was incredibly dangerous. In fact, you know what the locals called it? The locals called it the bloody way, right? So it's pretty gnarly. This, this bloody way cut through these steep, rocky hills that were full of caves. And so, so uh, it was ideal for thieves to hide in these caves and wait for somebody, jump out, beat them down, rob them, and get away. So, you know, back when, when our, a few years ago, when our, our family lived in, in National City, according to the demographic reports, National City, just seven square miles, was rated highest in the county, all of San Diego County, for violent crime. From, from Camp Pendleton to the border, from the ocean to the desert, rated number one in violent crime. Now, if you are a tourist and you are in National City, you probably took a wrong turn. That's probably what happened. And you probably shouldn't be whistling and skipping through the alleys with your fanny pack taking pictures. <laughs> Something bad might happen to you. Now, this place that Jesus is talking about, way worse, all right? There were no streetlights. There were no cops. There were no, no uh, surveillance. There was no surveillance. There were no cell phones. And Jesus tells us about a guy who got beat up and robbed, and he says that he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And verse 31, a priest and a Levite come along. They see this guy in a bloody pile, and what's it say? It says, they passed on the other side, the far side of the road. Now, okay, you read that, and I think it's easy for anybody to think, how in the world could they do that? How could they just walk by this guy who is in, you know, obviously needed help, just leave that guy to die there? Well, after thinking about it a little uh, a bit, I think you realize that there is a very good chance that most of us would do the same thing, okay? Because if you were taking a shortcut through an alley in the hood at night and you saw a man lying on the ground all bloody, half dead, groaning with an empty wallet next to him, what would you be thinking? You'd be thinking whoever did that to this guy is probably watching me now, is probably going to get me next, right? So you would get out of there and you would call the cops, right? Now, so maybe there was concern for their, their safety. But I also think, uh, we also see, rather, that there were religious reasons as well. The Levitical law said that, that anyone touching a dead body was ceremonially unclean. I mean, they, could, they would be excluded from worship for seven days. It was easy for these religious professionals to, to think, you know what? He might be dead or he might be about to die. I mean, I can't get in the way of my higher calling. So these religious guys passed him by to let him die. But they also passed by the very explicit, clear teaching of the scriptures that they would have been familiar with to have mercy on even, stranger, on even strangers who are in need. They let their schedules get in the way of God's calling. You know what they did? 
They disregarded God's calling on their life in the name of God's calling on their life. Finally, the Samaritan arrives. And you know what? The Samaritan faced the same danger as the priest and the Levite. And beyond that, the Samaritans and, and the Jews, they hated each other. They were, they were bitter enemies. Rather than, just stepping, rather than the Samaritan just stepping over uh, this, this Jew who is his enemy, you'd probably be inclined to step on him. But that's not what happened. Verse 33, Jesus says, And when the Samaritan saw him, he had compassion. His compassion compelled him to minister to his enemy's needs. And then what does Jesus say? He says, you go and do likewise. It was a, it's a straight-up command. You go and do likewise. Jesus says that the model for our lives and the model for our church is the Samaritan who risked his safety and just destroyed his schedule, became dirty and bloody to be personally involved with a needy person of a different race and a different class. Now, when you start chewing on this parable a little bit, I mean, if you're taking it seriously at all, it's going to raise a few questions, right? Maybe even some troubling questions. We're going to focus on three questions. The why, the who, and the how. And our first question is, why are we to love our neighbor? Well, if you're taking notes, here's the short answer. And the short answer is this, that Jesus teaches us that it is at the heart of what it means to have a relationship with God. Okay? Jesus tells us this, this parable to answer the, the lawyer's question when the lawyer asks, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So wait, time out, one second. Is Jesus saying that only social workers go to heaven? Is that what he's saying? I mean, aren't we saved by grace through faith in, in Christ? Yes. Then what in the world is Jesus saying here? Well, let me point out a, a couple of things as we unpack this, okay? First of all, let me be absolutely clear that loving your neighbor is not the basis of your salvation, okay? It's not the basis of your salvation. Look, this, this lawyer came to Jesus in order to, to trap him with, with a test. He was setting Jesus up. He was trying to trap Jesus into saying something negative about the, the law without realizing that Jesus was the one who wrote the law, right? So Jesus sets his own trap for the lawyer, a loving trap. And he asks the lawyer for a summary of the law. And this guy gives the right answer. Verse 27, he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Meet the needs of others just as eagerly and joyfully as you meet your own needs. And Jesus says, that's right. You got it. That's exactly right. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Excuse me. What is Jesus saying here? That, that, that we can gain e eternal life through you know, good deeds? No way. What Jesus is doing here is he's totally turning the tables on the lawyer. He's saying, sure, you, sure, yeah, you can inherit eternal life if you obey the law perfectly. If you do that for your whole life from birth to death, if you do that, 
then you'll live. But Jesus is always saying, what he's trying to, to get this lawyer to see is look at the law. If you see clearly, you'll realize that you have not kept the law and you cannot keep the law. He wants this guy to draw out the implications. So then I guess, you know, I don't have life. I can't have life. I'm, I don't know what I'm going to do. Jesus' goal is to convince the lawyer that he cannot get right with God or remain right with God through his own moral effort. So how should this lawyer respond to Jesus? What he should should be saying is, well, then how in the world can anyone be saved, right? How can anyone be right with God? And if he asked that, then Jesus would have said, only through the mercy of God. But the lawyer resists Jesus, like we do most of the time. He was trying to sneak out of Jesus' trap, and so he says, well, you know, who's my neighbor, really? Who is my neighbor? What he's doing here is he he wants to frame Jesus' command in a way that makes Jesus' command more attainable. He's trying to water down the law and lower the bar to make the law more doable. But Jesus responds with a parable that that shows that that loving our neighbor is far beyond anything that we could actually achieve. Jesus says, I want you, okay, let's put it this way. So Jesus says, I want you to imagine a Samaritan helping a Jew. I want you to imagine a Palestinian rescuing an Israeli soldier. I want you to imagine an undocumented immigrant stopping to help a hurt border patrol agent. If, if, those, if those examples frustrate you, know what it means? It, it means that you're starting to understand what Jesus is trying to do here. And we got to get this. We got to wrestle with that. Or we will fall into destructive moralism. And it is destructive because we'll end up thinking that we're better than we really are. And, that, and then we'll totally miss what we really need. Jesus gives us this parable to, to humble us with the love that God requires with the love that God commands with the with the love that that God demands so that we will willingly receive God's love and we'll see our desperate need for his love so loving your neighbor is not the basis of your salvation instead loving your neighbor is the evidence of your salvation loving your neighbor is the fruit of your salvation you know what happens when you when, you, when your eyes are open, when your heart is open, when your mind is open to the realization that the God of the universe loves you, do you know what happens to you when you get that? You will love others. When you know God's love, you will show God's love. That's how it works. It is the natural, logical result. Loving your neighbor is proof of true faith. And there is no clear, um, it, it, no place is it clear that in Matthew 25, uh, Jesus, again, is teaching. And he says that on Judgment Day, the Lord will distinguish between people who have true faith and people who have counterfeit faith. And counterfeit faith looks like the real deal, but it's not. It's a ripoff. 
And, and Jesus is saying, here's how you can tell the difference between true faith and counterfeit faith. You look at the fruit. Specifically, their love for their poor, the love for the homeless, the love for the sick, and the love for prisoners. Jesus goes on to, to, to teach that the king, speaking of himself, was, the king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. All right. So, I want you to imagine a, a filthy, rich, older woman with no heir except her one nephew who's always nice to her. How can she know if his kindness is legit, if it's genuine? I mean, what his heart is, is really like. So, she has an idea. She decides she dresses up. Uh, as a homeless person, and settles in on her nephew's porch. And when he comes out the next morning and sees her, he cusses her out, threatens her, and runs her off. Now she knows his true character, right? In a way, Jesus is saying, I am that homeless person on your porch. I am that homeless person that makes... that." that's causing whatever uncomfortable feeling or nervousness that you have going on in, in, in your chest right now. I am that homeless person on your porch. Who you how you treat her tells me how you're really like. So why are we to love our neighbors? It is at the heart, at the very heart of what it means to have a relationship with God. It is the evidence of our salvation. And that brings us to our next question. It's a question that the lawyer asked, right? Let's take, it, let's take it seriously, not as something to kind of lower the bar or water down uh, God's demand, but the question is, who are our neighbors? I, I think this is, I think Jesus wants us, was trying to get the, the lawyer to, to think about this, this seriously. The short answer is this. Our neighbors are anyone in need, okay? That's who our neighbors are. Anyone in need. That's what Jesus' parable teaches us. Anyone in need. Now, here, here's the deal. Most people agree that we're supposed to care for, for people in need. The lawyer, the, you know, the lawyer believed that. But he still wonders, you know what? How can I make what God requires, you know, more reasonable? Well, with the priest and the Levite, Jesus exposes our tendency that we have to limit. God's command to, to try to lower the bar when it comes to loving our neighbor. And with the Samaritan in this story, Jesus shows us that our neighbor is anyone at all in need, including our enemies, including people who talk smack about us, including people who insult us, including people who stab us in the back including people that, that mock us, including and especially our enemies. So let's think about that. Let's bring this into your world right now. I want you to think about your world. I don't want this just to be theory. Think about people that you know, all right? Who is your neighbor? Have you, like me, maybe thought, yeah, sure, we should help people out in need, but... 
I mean, where does it end? It's a slippery slope. I mean, come on, we got to be reasonable. Or you don't mean that, that we should be inconvenienced to help just, you know, anyone. Charity begins at home. Or, you know what, not, not everyone's supposed to get involved with, with helping people in need. I'm not good at it. It's not my spiritual gift. So, you know, I serve in other ways. Or, you know what, I, I, it's my view that the poor are just, they're just irresponsible. Because after all, God helps those who help themselves. Amen? Amen. No, wrong. It's not in the Bible. So many people think that's in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. Or we might think, wait a second, helping the poor, helping those in need, isn't that, isn't that the government's job? Isn't that why I pay taxes? You ever tried to put limits on God's command to love your neighbor? So, I, I mean, if you're anything like me, yeah. So who is, who is your neighbor? Think of your world. It, it's, it's that cranky dude that lives next door that's always complaining. It's, it's that older woman who lives all alone. It's that, it's that man three doors down that's dying of AIDS. It's, it's that guy at school or, or at work that everybody else makes fun of behind his back. It's, it's all those people in our neighborhood who we don't even talk to. The first step in loving our neighbor is getting to know them. And most of the time, we don't even know their names. So, we, we kind of look at this as, as individuals, but I think it's also important for us to look at this as a church family. Okay? As a church in this city, who is our neighbor? Our, our neighbors are the homeless that, that, that live under our bridges or have set up campsites out by Escondido Creek? How are we as a church called to love them as our neighbor? Our neighbors are, are the single moms who have been rejected by their boyfriends or, or, or their husbands and, and uh, they fear the judgmentalism and, and self-righteousness of religious people. How can we as a church be a neighbor to them? Our neighbors are the sex workers in our city who are, in many cases, teenagers and victims of sex trafficking. How can we as a church be a neighbor to them? Our neighbors are the working poor who barely make ends meet with maybe multiple jobs just trying to make the rent. How can we as a church be neighbors to them? I mean, if you want, if the Holy Spirit is stirring something up in your heart where this is just motivating you and, and you just don't know where, where to go, just, you want to help somebody, just, just look around. Just open your eyes. Ask God to open your eyes to see who he has deliberately placed in your life. To notice the people around you that everybody else overlooks. And if you still struggle with that, let us know, and we'll, we'll get you connected with the right people. Now, our neighbors are anyone in need. And then finally, our last point, that's the how question. How? How can we love our neighbors the way that Jesus calls us to love our neighbors? How can we as a church um, be a church that loves our neighbors the way God has called us to. Well, 
simply on our own? We can't, okay? We can't. <laughs> I, I know this. you might be frustrated right now saying, you know what, you tell us this is why infusion is here, that we are supposed to love our neighbors and that it's at the heart of what it means to be a Christian, at the heart of what it means to have a relationship with God, and now you say that we can't exactly right. Left to ourselves, we can't. And so let me explain what I mean. This lawyer is a moralist. And what I mean is he believes that he can keep God's law good enough, better than most people, so he must be okay with God. That, that he can inherit eternal life through his, or, or hold on to his eternal life through his own moral effort. So Jesus gives him a picture of, of the love that God's law demands, that it, that it requires a self-sacrificing a love that is so lofty that not one of us, not even the best person among us, can reach it. Jesus' goal is to show the lawyer who believed that he was spiritually rich was, in fact, spiritually broke, is spiritually bankrupt. And you know what? This is not an isolated theme in the scriptures. Listen to how Isaiah put it many, many, many years earlier than this. He says, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteousness, all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. He is saying that on our own, our most righteous deeds are like filthy rags. So this is what I want you to do. I want you to imagine the dirtiest, smelliest, most frail and wasted homeless person wandering the streets in just tattered rags. Not much of a mind left. No resources whatsoever. Nothing that anyone would value. And Isaiah says, in light of God's holiness, that's what all of us are. Before God. Now, if that offends us, maybe the first reaction is, I, I think Matt's ring, just making this stuff up. But the truth is, this is not my opinion. This is God's opinion. This is not just my teaching. This is God's teaching. This is not what I say. This is what God says. God says the only way, the only way we can inherit eternal, eternal life, the only way that it can be ours forever is by realizing that on our own we are absolutely spiritually broke. Now, I know, I know this sounds like, uh, like a really negative message so far, right? It sounds desperate, doesn't it? But look what Jesus has to say about it. Through our lens, it is really negative. But Jesus says this, that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To inherit eternal life, you know what we need to do? We need to let go of our middle class spirit. By default, we all have a middle class spirit. A moralistic, self-righteous, middle-class spirit. And God is calling us to be poor in spirit. Broke, dead, broken spirit. Why? Because it is the only way that we can receive God's mercy. And what is God's mercy? It's simply this. That even though we are, we're spiritually broke, 
God provides spiritual riches for us in Christ. In Christ, God himself became poor so that his immeasurable spiritual riches, so that his holiness and so that his righteousness could be given to those who admit that they cannot do it on their own and then who have nothing, no other choice left but then to, to simply trust Jesus. The Apostle Paul says this. These are two of my favorite verses. That God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then he puts it in economic terms. And he says that for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. So that you through his poverty might become rich. That is good news right there. But we'll miss the good news if we, if we turn a blind eye to the bad news. This won't lead us to worship. This won't lead us to love others. This, this, this won't have any impact on our hearts whatsoever if we refuse to look at the bad news first. Now, um, whenever I talk about this parable, I, I, I always want to ask this question. As you read the story, listen to the story, and you consider all the characters in Jesus' story here, the question is, who do you most identify with? You know what? Maybe, maybe, um, maybe you had a, a really bad week, and you're feeling pretty low because you realized that uh, you crossed, in a sense, crossed over, passed by on the other side of the street, and so maybe you identify you know, with uh, the priest and the Levi. Or maybe, <laughs> yeah, last week you handed a bottle of water to a guy on the, at the intersection. You feel like, hey, man, I'm, I'm doing all right. I, I kind of identify with the Good Samaritan right here. Well, here's the deal. If you truly understand God's holiness, if you truly understand the righteousness of God, if you truly come to grips with the kind of love that God demands from us, you realize that that. We're not the good Samaritan. And once you get that in your mind, you realize, well, you know what? I, I'm not necessarily the uncaring priest and, and Levite who walked by either. The truth is, if I understand the story here, the truth is you and I are the traveler, the broken traveler who's been beat up and kicked to the curb and left broke and dying. That is who we should most identify with in this parable of the Good Samaritan. Left to ourselves, that is who we are. That is the bad news. But thank God there is good news. Thank God there is life-giving news, glorious news, the best news the world has ever heard. That there really is a good and perfect Samaritan. And guess what? We need him. We need the Good Samaritan. It is not just a story. There really is a true and perfect neighbor. There really is one who did not pass by but had compassion on us. And, and this one not only risked his life, he willingly gave his life for us. And on the cross, he pays the price to rescue us from death. He got what we deserve so that we'd get what he deserves his inheritance of eternal life. You know, what the, you know what the gospel is? 
The gospel is that we can't, but Jesus did. You know what? This, this truth right here, to the extent that, that we believe that and cherish it, it changes us. It absolutely changes us. When, when we get it and we see our own need for the good Samaritan, it changes our hearts. It changes our lives. It changes our priorities. It changes the way that we live, the way that, that we look at ourselves, and especially changes the way that we look at other people, especially people who might not be as fortunate as we might be. And then... This is when life, then we start living it out. Then we start living out the good news and, and proclaim the grace of Christ through both word and deed. This is the, this is the fruit of the gospel. I'm going to close with this, right? Uh, let me show you three things that, that will happen. First, when we believe the gospel, to the extent that we believe the gospel, we will genuinely identify with those in need. So that means that when we see the poor, that means when we see the homeless, when, that means when we see the helpless, that we know that spiritually we are looking in a mirror. Okay? <laughs> do, you, do you get that? We're looking at in, in a mirror. We see their dirty, tattered clothes, and we think, you know what? All of my righteousness is as a filthy rag. But in Christ, both of us can be clothed in Christ's glorious righteousness. And then, and then, you know what happens? We, we, uh, we don't look down on them. We don't patronize them. We don't disrespect them. Instead, we actually have a lot of respect for them. Instead of, in, instead of serving them with an attitude of superiority and with like a, a savior complex, we see them as, as people from whom we have much to learn. See, the gospel totally changes our attitude. Secondly, to the extent that we believe the gospel and see our need for God's grace and we see God's compassion for us, then we will have compassion for those in need. You know what? The Samaritan didn't have any good reason to show, show this guy mercy. No one expected him to stop. In fact, people would probably understand if he walked on by. But he does stop. Why? Because he was moved with compassion. You know what, moralists, moralists love their neighbors out of nothing but obligation and guilt. Or maybe trying to have something to prove. But the only true um, motivation, the only enduring motivation for loving your neighbor is, is experiencing God's radical grace in the gospel for you. And you know what? <laughs> You know what that means? It means that we won't get all uptight about who deserves our help and who doesn't. <laughs> we do that, don't we? Thank God that he didn't do that with us because we didn't deserve it. When we know that we are sinners saved by grace alone, we will have compassion for the outcasts. And then third, 
to the extent that we believe the gospel, to the extent that, that we, are, we see that God has been so incredibly, sacrificially generous to us, we will be generous to others, to people in need. If we get the gospel, it logically and, and naturally, necessarily leads to a life of generosity and sacrifice and mercy. We all of a sudden stop grasping for things that we, we think we need to be okay. We become radically content and, and a radically generous person regardless of how much we have or how much we don't have. And what's so crazy is I see so often the people with the least setting the pace for everybody else. Why? Because we know that our treasure is in heaven, right? You know, last year in uh, 2015, we had more people, uh, this was interesting as we're kind of evaluating the year, we had more people give above and beyond, significantly and sacrificially, specifically designated to help people in need, above and beyond. As a church, we were able to help more people in 2015 than any other year in recent history. Okay, that's encouraging, and that's pretty cool, but it didn't end there. We also saw people just trashing their schedules, reprioritizing their lives to get personally involved in the lives of people who are in need opening their home to people in need, extending their dinner table to people in need. See, when the gospel comes into our lives and, and when we believe it, we become incredibly content, radically generous, and genuinely humble. So why are we here? We are here to love our neighbors in word and deed for the glory of God. Not as a way of earning eternal life or holding on to eternal life, but as a way of, of thanking God for, for his gift of eternal life through Jesus. Because we've just been just blown away by his radical grace to us. We can't help but share that same radical grace with other people. That can change a city. Do you believe that? Proverbs 11.10 says, when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. What kind of church? As we think about how God is shaping us and, and molding us as, as a church, what kind of church will cause our city to rejoice? That is the question that we are constantly going to ask and wrestle with and that is, the, that is the church that we will constantly be seeking to be so that we might become a church that radically loves our neighbors in word and deed. Amen? Amen. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your amazing uh, grace, your, your radical grace that you have shown to us. And, and God, I pray that you would guard our hearts. I pray that you would guard our hearts against um, starting to think that, that we're not quite as bad as other people and that 
you didn't have to stoop quite as low to save us as you do other people. Or when we experience the benefits of your grace, thinking that, that we earned that. Heavenly Father, help us to realize that every good thing is a gift from you. God, I pray that, that in this moment, that us together as a church, that, that as we are praying to you right now, collectively as a church, I ask you that, that you would, by your grace, that you would diag- give us a diagnosis of our hearts, that, that you would help us to see the, the self-righteousness in our hearts, that you would help us to see um, our, our, our apathy, that you, would, that you would help us to see our tendency to think that, that, that we might be just a little bit better than, than other people. God, I pray that you would convict us of, of our sin this morning, that, that we would see that apart from, from you, we are spiritually bankrupt, dead broke. God, we pray that you'd help us to understand uh, the bad news so that we can appreciate the good news and be transformed by your good news and your grace, your love, your generosity that you have towards us. And then, God, we pray that by your spirit, you would compel us to have compassion, the compassion of Christ that we would become more like Christ because we are focusing on Christ. God, we are desperate for you. And God, I pray, Lord, that if there is anybody here this morning that has not trusted you, anybody here this morning that have realized that, that they that right now they are spiritually broke, spiritually bankrupt, and they desperately need the riches of Christ, I pray that this morning you would give them the faith to trust Christ, that you would give them the courage to follow Jesus and to become part of your family of brothers and sisters with you as our Heavenly Father. God, please transform us as individuals, as families, as groups of friends, and as a church so that we can make um, the truth of Jesus and the character of Jesus unignorable in our city. We pray this in your name.